You're listening to Felony Podcast on the Startup Radio Network. The Felony Podcast explores ex-felons that have gone on to launch their own startups. We explore the ups, the downs, the behind-the-bar stories with these founders. Felony Podcast airs every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. Yeah, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another exciting edition of the Felony Inc. Podcast. I'm your host, DJ Dick Hennessy. Uh... You know, Felony Inc. Podcast is broadcasting live every Friday at 10 a.m. from NetSpace in the majestic 11th floor of the Union Bank Tower in scenic downtown Portland, Oregon. Uh, basically, Felony Inc. Podcast is uh, trying to put a highlight that in a society that houses the largest inmate population on Earth, anything that can be done to re- reduce the recidivism rate is incredibly valuable. Today's guest is a return guest, Sean Beers from the Portland Product Works. Sean Beers, if you guys haven't uh, joined us before and heard that, uh, got an incredible story, in my opinion. <laughs> Sean's, let me give you a little backstory on Sean. His entrepreneurial career began in the mid 1980s when, as a high school dropout, and that was in Portland, it was. he developed a knack for the cocaine business. Uh, to this day, he uses these experience to inform him around inventory management, cash flow, debt, financing, quality control, sales strategy, and business instinct. Of course, it didn't end well when, uh, on the day of the Rodney King riots, Sean was busted with two kilos of cocaine in Los Angeles and subsequently was sentenced to and served five-year prison sentence in California. From that point forward, President Perseverance, actually, became the battle cry for Sean as he fought to gain admission and graduate with an accounting degree from Linfield. Fought his way into law school despite not knowing if he would ever be admitted to practice law and ultimately fought the Oregon State Bar at the Oregon Supreme Supreme Court to earn his admission to the practice of law in Oregon, which is absolutely fucking incredible in my opinion. Settling, I mean setting legal precedents in the process, see Oregon Supreme Court decision in Rebeers. So, Sean, no, I don't really say this lightly, but um, you know, we we've had some incredible guests on the show. Uh, obviously, the founder of the show, Dave Dahl, crazy story of just defying all odds and 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 bouncing back and doing you know a ton of time and 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 becoming a very incredible, successful business person. But. Uh, don't take this lightly when I say I feel like your story is even more impressive um, just based on the fact that here you are as a young kid in you know, a crazy time in American history. Uh, you got busted with two, cocaine, I mean, two kilos of cocaine in Los Angeles and you were sitting in L.A. County Jail at the worst possible time to, to be in there. And could you you could never imagine in your wildest dreams that you would end up being a criminal defense attorney, correct? I dreamt pretty big, so I can't say that it wouldn't have ever crossed my mind in my wildest dreams. I, I've, for some reason, always had this um, outlook and viewpoint that, you know, anything's possible. Um, why I felt like I had to dig the deepest hole I could possibly dig in order to start that process is maybe a little bit of a mystery, but the... but. 
but I'm, I'm a pretty big believer again in the power of perseverance, which you referenced in that opening. And, um, and really if we put our minds to it, we're capable of just about anything irrespective of where we start from. And I think that's really the, one of the key messages for anybody listening to the show or coming out of a bad situation, whether it be prison or, or whatever it is, um, uh, you know, you can reset the clock and, and get after it. So. I mean, and and that's the whole premise of the show, in my opinion, is being like, you know, it might look bad now, yeah, but don't give up. You know, uh, a lot of the people that I know personally, including myself, have had to go through hell and back to create something that they would have never been motivated to create without that. Um, and I feel like, obviously, that was hugely influential on your on your situation. Yeah, I think that. Um... <clears throat> There's an interesting book that I'd reference to the listeners out there. Uh, it's called David and Goliath by Malcolm Gladwell. And it's kind of a series of sort of short stories about individuals that um, achieve great things, but came from really um, not optimal backgrounds and how sometimes those are actually advantages and not dis- not disadvantages. So, um you know, I'm, <laughs> it wasn't intentional on my part to to create a series of disadvantages along the way, the lines that I did. But um, you know, it just just goes to show that having a perfect scenario for for oneself isn't always the path. In fact, often isn't the path to doing really great things. And in this case, in my case, maybe it's not the businesses that I'm involved with. Maybe it's more important to be doing the work that we're talking about here and in motivating others to get on the right track and so forth. But I could have never probably done what I've done. Um, as little or as great as that may seem to any, any in other individual, but without having some real serious adversity injection in my life. Because I grew up in a perfectly Brady Bunch family type situation, really no reason to go crazy the way I did at all. And, uh, and um, you know, I, so I was more fortunate than many people who don't have the choice to come through a more screwed up situation. But regardless, um, there is a path to to get into a happier place and a more productive place. So. Uh, absolutely. So, like you said, yeah, you graduated from Wilson High? No, I didn't actually graduate. I dropped I out mean, you of, dropped, of you, a Loa High School. You attended a Loa High School. Yeah. And it was one of the, <laughs> one of the Western high schools. That's right. Um, so what year did you make it to? Uh, I dropped out at the beginning of my senior year, as I recall. I mean, things are a little fuzzy around yeah. that time frame, I'll admit. But, uh, but yeah, something along those lines. I think I played a year of football and said, "All right, I'm done with that. Let's, I'm out of here. We're gonna go do some other stuff." So. I mean, it sounded like it was working out pretty good for you. If you had two kilos in Los Angeles, you were probably living the high life at the time. Uh, well, high life and the low life. I was pretty, pretty serious degenerate drug addict. Uh, uh, on top of all that, but um, <clears throat> yeah, we um, we uh, we it was a bit of a Pulp Fiction movie like experience. I would say uh, living in L.A. and Vegas and running around with, uh, uh, you know, all the sort of stuff that comes with that world. And so um, it was uh, exciting, to say the least, but uh, dangerous as hell and, and not super productive for sure. So uh, anyways, yeah. Yeah, I mean, totally. I, so basically you find yourself in a, in a horrible situation. I can't even imagine what that would be like uh, the day one of the Rodney King riots in jail, uh, looking at, I mean, how many years were you looking at? you were in there well i think the max was you know what before my sentencing would have been like 10 um it wasn't a federal it was they did it persecuted prosecuted under state law and um you know i don't remember all the guidelines at that time but in any case it was something like 10 years and i ended up with five years but the date yeah i mean that was about as big of a shock to the system that i could have 
I think I could have probably put myself into short of, you know, literally dying. And um, I, unfortunately, that was what it required. I mean, I guess I got handed what I what I was asking for and, and what was necessary in order to get my attention. And it, it got my attention pretty good, I'll <laughs> tell you. There's no doubt about it. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, there wasn't <clears throat> a lot of um, people that looked like me in that um, jail facility at that time. And... Um, it was a pretty violent uh, environment, extremely violent. And I'd been in jails here in Oregon as well. So it's, I have some places to compare, you know, some comparatives in Los Angeles County. It's a uh, much weirder, more intense, um, much more dangerous place than any place I'd ever been on earth. So. Yeah. I, th- I think it's probably the most dangerous of any county jail in America, in my opinion. And, uh, especially during, I mean, even if you're in a combustible situation, such as, you know, the Rodney King riots. If, even if you got you were there today, it would still be just as bad. It would be pretty bad. It, it would yeah. be pretty disturbing. Yep, sure, absolutely. So, uh, how, you were in there for a while. What what prison did you end up actually going to in California? I uh, we went through se- several different prisons. I just ended up spending most of my time in um, in San Luis Obispo, actually, which is the California men's colony. Um, it was a level, a lower level yard yeah. by the time I got there, and um, so it was much more. Um, much less intense. Although, um, you know, that was, I do recall a day where, I, and I did a lot of study in there, studying, playing guitar, lifting and working. And that was really my routine. And, and that's where I got myself kind of going. I would find accounting books in the library and study them. I did, I proctored uh, probably a year and a half of undergraduate college through Portland State when I was there. Oh, wow. And the guards would watch me take tests and they didn't like it at all. You know, it was one of those deals where you kind of had to punch through it regardless. But I do remember you know, as idyllic as that was for a prison setting, because it's pretty nice weather there on the Cal- central California coast, and um, pretty good, pretty good setup. But I, I remember studying um, calculus at a table in the yard, and and uh, all of a sudden it felt like a beehive kind of all around me, and a big riot went off. It was you know un- unrelated to to me in any way, shape, or form, but it was you know gunfire, everybody on the floor, lock up for two weeks, and it's like um, so even in a low level yard. In California, uh, making progress or whatever, there was still every reason to be um, uh, have eyes behind you know in the back of your head. Of course, yeah, yeah, especially back then. Yeah. So at, at this point or during any of that time, had you gotten to the law, law library? Like, had, had that been an interest of yours? Um, or how that began? N- not necessarily law library at that point. I was really focused on getting as far on my undergraduate degree as I could. I started studying finance. I was subscribed to Forbes magazine. I it's probably okay to say this now. I had you know managed to have there's a few dollars hanging around um, still, and I figured out how to invest and so forth. And so I was reading Forbes magazine. So I, I just I really took uh, this initiative to study and learn um, pr- quite seriously once I had the once my brain unfogged a bit and uh, I had the environment to, to be more productive. So I, I didn't waste any time once I was in there. It wasn't one of these things where I was saying to myself, when I get out, I'm going to do this. I just started doing it when I was in. Yeah. And that's, I think, frankly, a, a, you know, an important consideration for anybody that's in that can hear this podcast. I don't know that to what extent that happens, but it's a, you know, why you get more time now than you're ever going to have. Use it. Seriously. Quit playing dominoes. Pick up a book. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you have nothing. And, and that's the thing. If, if we just, even people out of jail, if we just utilized more time studying, uh, bettering ourselves, experiencing things like the sky's the limit. You bet. So, you know, I know it's kind of cliche to say, I'm sure you've heard this before, but like, 
you always hear like if you can if you can run a cocaine ring or a, a drug dealing business, you can run a Fortune 500 company. Uh, would you say that's accurate? I think I learned so much about it, the instincts around business that um, are applicable today that it, it, it was yeah. I mean, it's almost an MBA, frankly, in, in a lot of ways or more. Um, um, you know, we don't want to glorify <clears throat> the you know illegal drug trade, but the fact of the matter is is that all of those elements that you mentioned, uh, inventory, sourcing, collections, you know, making you know gross margin, uh, you know, et cetera, it's all it's all the same stuff. It's just the, the tax part, I guess, is missing. <laughs> you, you get taxed <laughs> in a completely different way. You yeah. get taxed with your time, and Absolutely. that's what, how I paid my taxes. So. Yeah. That makes sense. <laughs> so you do five years, yeah. and uh, you release. Do you move immediately back to Oregon, or what happens after that? I did. I remember walking out the day. I, I still remember walking out, and um, I wasn't even sure I wanted to. Honestly, by the time you get far enough in, you're like, you know, you got a you got a program, and uh, and now you're walking back out to a world of uncertainty, and and um, you know you don't have that same thing that you were doing before you went in so you, what are you going to go do and and so fortunately the education continued to help create a bridge for me um but yes i walked back out um came back to portland um um I, you know i, I was uh, continued in my studies i fairly quickly got a job that i you know had probably no business getting I, so i got lucky but i was very aggressive in trying to get jobs and um in fact my first job was with a wall street firm who I fully had, you know, told them the, my background. And for whatever reason, this gentleman that was running that office um, uh, said, you know, come on, just join us then. It's no big deal. So I was great. It was like this incredible opportunity and, and uh, you know, it was ground floor. But, I mean, my God, I was coming out of prison and I had no experience whatsoever. And yeah. this guy was getting me in a, into a big Wall Street firm that, you know, even at the bottom you could, you know, climb your way up in over time. And it turned out that they, you know, the senior management and even New York management decided that if, um, you know, I'd have to be bonded because of my background and it was going to be hard for them to do because of my background. And so, you know, if I really wanted to be a part of that industry, they were going to go to the mat and help me get it done. And I told them that I didn't actually, because that's not what I wanted to do. So I actually did end up walking away from it. And it was a tough day because it was then, it sort of sunk in on me, uh, you know, holy shit, this is a pretty big hole I put myself into. Like it, there's going to be a lot of obstacles here. And, uh, and, and so uh, I kept pushing away, and, and I found a, you know, a kind of a bookkeeping-type job because I'd done enough studying and whatnot to get conversion and capable in, in various software programs and accounting generally. And, um, you know, that, that was really the start of, of where I'm at today was to, uh, that, that, that first real job that I had coming out, which was probably within four or five months of getting out. So, you know, I, I've mentioned this before in, uh, my, when I did the interview here on Phil and Yank before I took over as co-host, but uh, my mom is a CPA. Mm. Uh, when you were in jail uh, and you were studying things, did you, I mean, calculus, obviously, but did you ever kind of delve into an accountant book? Or Sure, yeah. I, mean, I remember there's a, anybody that's an accountant that's, well, going or studied accounting in college has gone through something called the Kiso and Weigand Intermediate Accounting Book. It's kind of the gold standard. It's a giant fat accounting book and I found one in the law li or in the prison library. And that's I just I found another guy on the yard there that actually was an accountant and he started tutoring me through the book and so the materials are in there. I mean, if you go dig around the library, as Frank Zappa says, uh, if you want to drink beer, go to college. If you want to learn, go to the library. So uh, it's all in the library. The, the state pen libraries have lots and lots of materials that are worth checking out. So that's one example. Absolutely. 
So you go into you start going into the accounting field. Uh, do you get with the firm, or you start doing independent business yourself? No, I joined this firm that was I was doing bookkeeping for, and it was an investor relations role, which means that we were the, that firm was a liaison between um, public companies and the Wall Street investors. And I was just an accountant for them at that time. But, um, you know, you hang around a little bit and somebody leaves and you're, you raise your hand. Can I take his spot? Um, so I became account representative. Um, ultimately, you know, I learned really quick about, uh, you know, I had a really good mentor there, the woman that owned the firm. Um, I don't think she knew my background at the time. Um, I wasn't exactly, you know, advertising it widely. But um, and it turns out Columbia Sportswear became one of my clients. And this was before they were a public company. Prior, just prior to going public, and um, you know, they we worked. I worked great with them, and I, apparently, I did good work. And they offered me a position to come internal, and then I. That's when I knew I was I was kind of over the hump. Yeah. What you know, a real company like that had offered me a really legitimate salary internally, and I had somehow acclimated into that world, um, and was able to sort of chameleon my way into to a normal society, I guess, is what it comes down to. And it, so I was really great, uh, grateful for the opportunity. And they gave me many, many, many other opportunities once I got in, into the into the operation. And that's a piece of advice I give to young entrepreneurs and young people coming out of college and anybody really is align yourself with um, an organization that you think you can grow within. Don't worry about where you're starting. What's t- think about where you might finish. It doesn't matter where you start. Like, who cares about that extra? You need an extra five grand. Let's not let's not lose sight of the long game here. So, well, I mean, you know, I always say too, it's it's not about who you know, it's about who you surround yourself with. Sure. You know, if you look around, the people that are surrounding you or the company that's surrounding you, you can kind of tell probability yeah. wise what your future is going to be. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And uh, you know, rest in peace, Gert Boyle. But sure. uh, they must have seen something in you from the beginning. Yeah, Tim Boyle's my mentor. Really, he's somebody who I have looked up to and learned from this whole industry. On um, you know, since the day I got there at Columbia over 20 years ago now, and um, yeah, I shared a wall with Gert for years and yeah. learned a lot of lessons from her. And she's a pretty hard-edged lady, but uh, had her own incredible, difficult story. And and so it's another concept of where adversity actually probably works to our advantages, um, as opposed to having a you know soft bed every day. So. Absolutely. And just out of curiosity, not to, to sidetrack or backtrack, but, sure. you know, when you were in uh, Los Angeles and Vegas and, and selling Coke, um, you must have just been, like, living it up, you know, in my opinion. Sure. So, I, and, I, you know, I, I sold drugs myself and got in trouble for selling marijuana, uh, which is how I got my felony. But um, so I, I kind of can somewhat understand that mentality. But I think a lot of people, when... The rug is pulled out from underneath them, and the party's over. Like, it, it's so easy to have that propensity just to give up, and like, my life is over; it'll never be that good again. And just do menial tasks, or you know, just kind of eke out an existence. I yeah. feel like you were able to kind of, it, it, it almost in a way, stoke those flames and that fire inside of you to go incredibly hard. Well, I think you know this is one of the things that makes my comparison to some others maybe a little bit of an un fair comparison in in a lot of ways. I um, now full well recognize the value of the parents that I, that raised me and the, you know, the, the underpinnings that they kind of put into place. And, and um, I think, you know, not everybody's fortunate in that regard. So um, somewhere deep down, I knew that, you know, it was, it was ingrained in me that we, you know, like we could be successful regard, you know, in fact, more successful than, those days and those activity, those prior criminal activities, um, because I had good role models and examples in my life that showed me how it should work. Um, 
so I can't underestimate the strength of the power of, um, you know, my parents and, and what they did for me. And, and, um, you know, and as a result, I don't want to over <clears throat> congratulate myself for coming out of a situation that wasn't as nearly bad as a lot of people have to grow up in yeah. and so forth. So, um, you know, I'm lucky, I guess is what it comes down to. And I was able to, um, you know, turn it around, but I would, I doubt, you know, it would have been as successful or as quick had I, you know, had, um, had, absent that solid foundation, I guess is what it comes down to. So, yeah, it's, I mean, again, you know, the combination of, and I had similar upbringing, you know, I graduated Tiger High, grew up in Beaverton. Um, yeah, it's not the roughest place in the world. That's right. <laughs> yeah, I absolutely did not have to commit crimes at all whatsoever right. to survive. Uh, I just was greedy and chose to and wanted to enjoy life as much as possible and ultimately uh, paid the price, which is which is the thing to me is when you go through that and you're, you know, you're working through that, I, would, I often wonder going to going to jail, would it be the same without that? You know, and I feel like in your case, they had to have been an extremely powerful motivational piece. And uh, do you think if that never had happened and you would continue to extend in the cocaine business, would you have picked up that accounting book? No, would no, you, no. Yeah, no, of course no. not, right? No, no, I wouldn't have because, um, you know, I'm fundamentally a, an addict and an alcoholic. And I just, I would have never broken that channel, that chain of events if I hadn't have had a, a you know, been, I mean, you could get drugs obviously in prison, but yeah. um, I wasn't going to. I was in no position to mess around at that point, given the, my minority status and a variety of other things in that uh, situation. So, um, you know, I would have, yeah, no, there's no way in hell I would have ever, ever um, pulled it together had I not been like literally just hammered over the head. So, yeah, I, mean, I, I get it. I'm the same, but I'm the exact same. Pretty hard-headed guy. Yeah. So, uh, on that note, let's go to a commercial break real quick. We'll be right back. CPA dudes, where accounting is never boring. Their price is not based on time. Instead, customers decide what to pay them. They don't charge you for sending invoices, phone calls, emails, texts, or meetings. They just get the damn job done. Find them at cpadudes.com slash startup radio. Tell them Dave and Lad sent you, and we'll send you a very special surprise. Seriously, we will. Today's episode of the Felony Inc. podcast is brought to you by Publicize, a deconstructed PR subscription service which generates effective visibility for your business. Publicize handles all communications with the media and any content required to do this, such as press releases, editorial pitches, etc. And they offer a wide range of PR products and abilities out of which you can construct the PR package right for the future of your business. All right, and we're back, ladies and gentlemen. And again, today's guest, if you're just joining us, is Sean Beers from the Portland Product Works. Let me give you a little bit more insight on Sean. Uh, today, Sean is a licensed attorney with a certified public accountant and a certified public accountant in Oregon with extensive consumer products and a general management experience. Served for 11 years at Columbia Sportswear Company in a variety of professional roles, including in areas of finance, M&A, and brand management. Sean was integral into executing the successful turnaround of the Soro brand as well as, GM, as the GM, general manager, growing it from a bankruptcy state to $50 million in footwear and apparel revenue under his leadership, which is incredibly impressive. Additionally, he served as the general manager of Columbia Sportswear Company's global footwear business, where he was successful in executing 
an operational turnaround for the division while positioning it for future growth. In 2008, Sean became the president of Corkers, where he and his team reinvented the brand and the core technology which enabled Corkers to become the footwear of choice for fly anglers globally and opened the brand up to additional outdoor categories. In 2012, Sean raised a million dollars in capital and gathered a team of uh, highly experienced industry professionals to launch Portland Product Works, which is going on right now. Yep. As a foundation of bringing established brands into the footwear world and enabling accelerated growth for emerging brands through acquisition and season management. Uh, PPW's main line of business today is Woolrich, Woolrich Footwear, which has grown dramatically since inception. And uh, Sean is on the hunt for PPW's next license or acquisition. That is a little bit outdated, but I'll give you a couple of quick updates. So okay. uh, we're actually licensing uh, Pendleton brand right now for footwear. Um, and probably more exciting than, than any of that is the um, we did acquire a brand um, known as Dovetail Workwear, which is was founded by a group of local women here. And it's it's um, another part of my, I guess, a personal evolution as well. Uh, the brand is uh, focused on uh, de- delivering workwear to women. Uh, think of it as Carhartt for women, essentially. So the fit, function, and durability um, that is required for women to do any of a, r- a wide range of, of vocational uh, action activities like uh, construction sites or field sciences, uh, um, you know, welding, so on and so forth, um, as well as just generally uh, getting dirty. These are p- products that are geared for, you know, uh, taking action, getting things done, kicking ass in the world, and and the and the consumer has responded really significantly to it. So we're super excited about serving an underserved market, which is women that are actually getting shit done. So we're, I'm thrilled to be involved with it. It's like uh, Rosie the Riveter, you know. Exactly. Uh, yep, you got it. Modern day. I, I'm, I'm honestly I'm shocked that no one's that, thought of that before. I was too when I learned about it. I was like, ah, that's a good idea. So how do we get? How do we do a partnership here? So we combine their insight and. Some of their technical expertise on the production on the garment side of the the business with with our platform and financial and um, uh, you know sales channel access uh, to make a business and it's been going great. I mean, really, it's it's uh, probably the smartest thing I've ever done. Not probably, it is. Yeah, <laughs> it's very impressive. So I mean, you're working very very heavily with Columbia Sportswear, and then you transition to this. What was what was that transition point for you? Um, well. Um, let's see. When I left Columbia Sportswear, um, I, my stay there had run out, basically. I, I literally had given the company everything I had, I think somewhat to the exclusion of my own family during that time frame. And we were talking lots of travel, lots of hours, lots of Saturdays. Like, It was a little bit of a trap in the sense that, um, although it was a credible opportunity, it was not that different than some of the, st- the drug stuff from the past in the sense that um, you know, it was a little addictive in terms of the behavioral aspects of it. And I was just motivated to get as far away from my past as I possibly could and to get successful in the business. And I maybe took it an, a ledge, you know, maybe a little bit too far, I guess is what it comes down to. I did acquire great knowledge, but I got it into the point where I was seriously burned out by the time I got around to 2008. So we left as a family to go um, on a trip and decompress uh, to Costa Rica for about a month. And it was a uh, super great to just, I mean, I felt like I was 10 years younger and 
lot of the stress had come out. I stopped for a minute to figure out if my next step was in the industry or in outside of the industry. And I just realized I really liked the industry and, and manufacturing in China and selling to the U.S. customers the way we were. So I got the opportunity and or the they recruited me to become the president of this then sort of a $1 million company. It's relatively small in the outdoor industry, but here in Portland around fly fishing, which I'm a pretty avid fly fisherman, so it appealed to me. And um, I was able to bring to them a lot of experience from the big company perspective um, that they had lacked in terms of process and real acumen on the financial management side and things and, and you know things along those lines. But um, what was um, funny to me is that I actually learned way more at Corker's than I did at Columbia about being an entrepreneur because at Corker's we only we had to rub sticks together to make fire. At Columbia, you, you had an assistant that had you have had lunch for you at noon every day on time. So it was a totally different world. You want lunch, you go get your own lunch. You want to book a flight, you book your own flight. It wasn't there was none of that um, support system there, and and it really taught me a lot about. Um, what it takes to be an entrepreneur and how goddamn hard it is, frankly. And if you don't like it, then if you don't like the hard work and you don't like that uncertainty, and if you don't like, um, you know, having your teeth kicked in once in a while, then you probably should just go get a job because it, that's what's going to happen. And that's what every every entrepreneur's story is, involves some, um, if not a lot, of all of those seemingly negative things. But that's where the perseverance comes in, yeah. and that's where the background of having your ass kicked in prison and and doing th- doing through those processes of overcoming adversity really helps from an entrepreneurial standpoint. There is no easy path in the entrepreneurial world. So um, anyways, I don't know if that answers your question. But. Absolutely. And I, you know, I completely agree with you. Like uh, we make it look easy, uh, you know, and like just you transitioning from, you know, this company to that company. Uh, it sounds like it was just effortless, but the, the fact, of the, the fact of the matter, you know, I mean, you know, as we're talking about on the podcast, but the reality of it is, I mean, you know, I'm dealing with myself by being an entrepreneur, and it's it's nonsense. Hey, even in our current business, which has been quite a struggle over the last eight years, I mean, we had some wins and we had some some you know some lo- some pretty serious losses to the point where we thought we were going to go out of business. I've often said it's a good thing we're only on the fourth floor and not the ninth floor because I wouldn't get the job done from the fourth floor. So, yeah. and I, I'm only half kidding. I mean, it's it's a real roller coaster ride. So, what's weird is when you work with for a monster like Columbia Sportswear mm-hmm. and. Uh, you know, you're a part of that. Like, essentially, you're you're pacified. You know, you're not. You don't have to. There's no growing pains. There's no. I mean, there might be a little bit in well, terms internal of stuff. Yeah, but not. Yeah. That's right. That's right. You don't have to compete against the whole world. You're yeah. just competing internally, oddly enough. But yeah, it's. Uh, and, but but when you're not competing against the whole world, you're not going to develop these skills and this. That's right. Confidence. How to make payroll and what's a health insurance program look for every like for everybody and. We need some more sales. How are we going to get that? And I mean, it's, you know, a lot or even delivery of products from Asia. Um, you know, a lot of that stuff is just taken care of at the big companies and, and um, you know, by highly qualified people. But they're not in your line of responsibility. But in a smaller business, we own all those functions. Absolutely. So, yeah. And there had to be a part of you that was like, you know, I have a good thing going on with Columbia. Um, do I risk it? You know, it's. Is is the juice going to be worth the squeeze if I jump ship? No. Yeah, I think I was just out of my over my skis emotionally, and and I was just too burned out. I was drinking way too much, and I just you know it was just not going to be productive. I kind of lost my grip. So yeah, it, it um, I mean I do remember not being there. It was a little bit like the Rodney King day of the Rodney King riots in some ways because it was like. Okay, um, there's a major life change coming here, and it's actually not coming. It's here. Uh, now, how are we going to react to it? And so you got to dust yourself off and. 
that's just you know man up's probably not the right term anymore but uh you know that's uh you know pull yourself together and get after it absolutely and and i'm the same way i feel like all the major (laughs) breakthroughs in my career in my life have come through just moments of extreme struggle and and just problem solving and you know incredible barriers in front of you and overcoming those yeah Uh, i feel like nothing no amount of book reading or whatever can prepare you for that. It has to be something that you do. It's internally and it's it's I'm in constantly you. telling college kids to drop out, and get a job. So <laughs> I probably shouldn't do that. Their parents won't like me very much, but uh, you know, I mean, you it's kind of it's true. I mean, yeah, you, I, mean, I, I graduated know. from U of O, and uh, when and I always tell people, you know, what I took from that was obviously you know it helped me out in terms of my career, but you know, there's not a lot of people in my line of work, so. My guidance counselor, no one prepared me for what I'm doing. I sure. Strip club promotions. Um, but the they main thing. They don't offer that at U of O? I thought that was probably the core, <laughs> the core curriculum. It, it might be now. It might be now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, the, I mean, the whole thing was all college taught me is to how to get a job done on a timetable. Mm-hmm. And then over and over again. And, uh, you know, specific task here, a different task over there. And then just building that confidence over four years. But other than that. It's nothing, in my opinion, nothing that I couldn't have developed on my own sure, with sure. the with the right instruction and motivation. I think for me that you know there's some, some some there are some technical elements. I'm neither an accountant, a practicing accountant, or a practicing attorney at the moment. But um, having those skills is incredibly important in running our business. So I mean, I you know, reading a balance sheet, understanding how financials work, cash flow statements, and so forth. It's I mean, you can't run a business if you don't have some of that. You know, those skills. I tell entrepreneurs. Um, uh, many of whom aren't financially um, sophisticated. If you can't do math, then you better get a friend that can, because the people are going to want to know your numbers, and you need to know your numbers. And I don't encourage people to become accountants; it's quite the opposite. But um, you got to have um, you got to have some of those chops. And so the 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 educational aspects for me, you know, were directly related to those aspects, and it did really it has helped our business a lot. So yeah, I mean, that's the thing; numbers don't lie, you know. Uh, but just. Let's liars write them down, but yes. <laughs> then they, then they <laughs> there's, good, there's good accountants and bad accountants, for sure. Um, but just out of my own personal curiosity, what, uh, I mean, what motivated you to go to law school? And, uh, I mean, it's, it sounded, to me, if I were you, I'd been like, there's no way. And there had to be uh, a little bit of that. You know, well, head. my grandfather was a lawyer and a judge here in Oregon. Okay. Uh, my father was a lawyer. Um, we all went to Lewis and Clark. Um, I... At that time, I remember thinking, you know, at that time, I had a full head of steam. I just graduated undergraduate from Linfield and, you know, starting to work at Columbia. And I was on, you know, I was like on a pretty good track. I was on fire. And and I was either going to get an MBA or or I wanted to get an advanced degree. Again, I wanted to get as far away from my background as possible. I'm still running from that. And um, everybody was getting MBAs. And I thought, well, I'm going to differentiate myself a bit and get a law degree, even though I knew I wasn't going to practice law. My thought process was going to law school will help me and did, in fact, learn how to frame problems and identify alternative solutions to those problems. And I could apply that that model of problem solving to anything that I approach, whether it was business, personal, or legal, for sure. Um, and so that was the reason that I went to law school. Um, and so the bigger question might be, why the hell did you push so hard to spend all the money, time, and, 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 and uh, stress to get your actual admitted to the practice of law if you'd already learned how to solve models? And I, and I, and I sorry not to steal your line of questioning, but um, I, I thought to myself, you know, I'm this close to ringing the bell. I'm going to ring that goddamn bell. So 
I didn't know what that was going to look like, and I didn't know how hard it was going to be or how public it was going to be. It was on front pages of the business page. Everybody in the business knew about it now at Columbia. And it was, I wouldn't say embarrassing, but it was some little bit uncomfortable because a lot of people, you know, there's a stigma with being an ex-con. I mean, it just is, and we all know that. And um, that's part of the reason why some of us don't get off our rear ends and go do stuff because we're somewhat ashamed or we think other people are thinking about us in a certain way. And that's true. It is true. They are. And you're not going to change their minds. I mean, you, you might change it over to- over decades of doing good stuff, but you're not going to change their minds in five minutes because if they have preconceived notions about what an ex-con is, you, you move on. You, you can't change their minds. Go, just keep plowing ahead with what you can do and do, do the right thing. And so that... Um, that was a motivator for me to, to go after it and, and go to the Supreme Court. We ultimately changed the law. So now there's a clear path for ex-cons to become lawyers in Oregon as a result of my case, which they do teach in the law schools in the West Coast. At least I know it lives in Clark and others. And um, it was uh, it was uh, not financially rewarding, but it was, um, it was a moral victory for sure. And it was another example of... You can accomplish what you want to if you put your mind to it. So and yeah, again, you know, to reiterate what I said at the beginning of the podcast, I mean that's if that's not incredibly inspirational, I don't know what is. And there had to have been kind of moments in, in the back of your mind where you're like, This might not work out. Oh, yeah, I'm gonna spend sure. all this time, oh, all this yeah. energy, all this money, and they're just gonna pull the rug out from underneath me. Yeah, well once we realized they were doing that at the or at the Board of Bar Governors and at uh, the state bar and I um you know, we, we realized pretty quickly we were going to end up having to litigate this to the Supreme Court. And that's, you know, that's a that's a big investment for a yes or no answer. And um, it ended up being a unanimous verdict in my favor, um, thanks to a great lawyer, Brad Tellum, here in town, um, who just was incredible, helped me out both financially as well as just uh, on the legal side of things and <laughs> probably quite a bit emotionally as well. But um, I was, uh, yeah, I didn't, I didn't sort of expect, I just helped, you know, had this high hope that we were going to have success and that, that I had done a number of things to stage myself for success, like contributing to not-for-profit. No, I don't mean money. I mean time on not-for-profits and helping other people generally, raising a family, doing good stuff, putting distance between my then situation and the, my prior criminal background so that ultimately a Supreme Court could say, yeah, this guy's reformed and he's a good guy now. He was a pilot, you know, whatever, but now he's a good guy. And, and uh, I guess it's hopeful for all of us that the I think the world generally is certainly here um, you know likes to afford people a second chance I mean everybody loves an underdog a comeback kid a turnaround story and and um, so notwithstanding the fact that there's a lot of bias against ex-cons in the world um, there's also at the same time this sort of bias towards um, giving people a second chance especially people that are showing that they're worthy of having a second chance yeah. And again, because the responsibility is on us, right? Yeah. It's not on the society. No, no. This We already fucked that up. <laughs> yeah. So it's totally up to us. And, you know, like me personally, uh, I have my felony expunged. I have, uh, I'm, I've never been more legal in my entire life. I'm, I'm really proud of that. I have my concealed weapons Good permit. You. Uh, that I, I never thought in a million years. That's great. I would get. So uh, before you entered uh, school of law, did you, you were able to get your record expunged? No. Really? Nope. nope. I You're still a felon. Have, I'm a felon. You're still a felon. Still a felon. Twice convicted, actually. I have one in Oregon wow. and one in California. So I got busted with a pound of cocaine sometime in the 80s before I got busted with four pounds of cocaine okay. in Los Angeles. I didn't, so, I didn't know about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I've, I've not done that. Um, I don't know. I mean, sure, I, I would love to, um, you know, maybe expunge it. But I think it's, at this point now, it's a bad, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a point of strength, not a point of weakness. So yeah, I, yeah, it's yeah. like, why even bother? Well, it's, a, it's a moot point. Like, 
Yeah. You already you already done it. Yeah. You know, there's nothing. I I kind of expunged it myself. I guess. Yeah, it's yeah. a practical matter. Yeah, of course, uh, mentally yep. expunged. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, man, that's incredibly inspirational because everyone that's listening, you know, if there's someone in prison listening, someone that just got out listening, I mean, here we have a person that's still a felon, successfully, not just in business, but practicing law. That's something no one can imagine. And uh, in, in my opinion, personally, just between everything else that you have going on, you're almost like the Swiss army knife of business, <laughs> in, in my opinion. Yeah, we, we, I've learned a lot over the years, for sure. I've been fortunate to come across a variety of really great leaders to learn from, and um, I've been forced to have to figure stuff out because uh, we didn't have any other choice but to figure it out, and I'm still learning, so... Um, now I feel like we're in a better, I'm in a better position than ever. And maybe the best lessons I'm learning is about having the right people around us on the team. And we've got a fantastic team, um, super accountable to one another, more family, like family than it is like a business. And it's, we're going through a tricky period right now, but, um, the, the there's some really good stuff on the horizon that we just need to keep working to. And that's, that's where we're all at. So. And I'm looking forward to hearing about that. I'm going to bring that up real soon. Let okay. me just say the third part of the <laughs> introduction for you real quick. Uh, once again, Sean is a fly fishing, skiing, and music enthusiast. I love music. Uh, he has three boys, ages 21, 20, and 14. He works extensively with the startup and emerging company community in Oregon through his work with the Portland Development Commission, where he teaches a curriculum based on his own experiences as an entrepreneur. Sean, tell me about that. Yeah, so... <clears throat> um, I don't know. There's there's a lot of startup activity in Portland, and I think you know there wasn't as much ten years ago. But even as far back as ten years ago, I started becoming a little bit of a Pied Piper, I guess, around apparel and consumer product startups. Like people would say, "Oh, you need to go meet Sean. You should go talk to Sean." Like lawyers would tell you know uh, new entrepreneurs or whatever this and that other thing. And so I I kept hearing from these people, and I also was trying to solve problems on my own. Like, how do I get this printed, or what about that problem that we need solved, or who's good at digital marketing and things like that. So I, instead of trying to solve that on my own, I started this class, um, or as one of the founders of this class at um, what was then Portland Development Commission, now it's known as Portland Prosper, um, or Prosper Portland, I'm sorry. But um, in any case, it was a kind of a peer-to-peer class. It was um, all te- let's get 10 companies that are you know around a million dollars in size that are all in consumer products into the same room. We all have the same problems. We're not really competitors because one's a bag company, one's a shirt company, whatever. But fundamentally, bringing products to market, designing them, sourcing them, financing them, there's a lot of the similarities yeah, in those struggle. same struggles. But so why are we trying to individually solve this as opposed to sharing the information with one another? This guy's going to know something about topic A, that guy's going to know something about topic B, that gal's going to know something about topic C. Which, you know, for every one thing you share, you're likely, it's like a buffet of information for entrepreneurs, right? For every one thing you share, there's 10 other dishes for you to, to, to pick from that can help move your business forward. So that was the original idea. And um, it's just really more evolved into something a little bit more structured now, where um, we have a class every year, and there's about 10, I think, new emerging startups that are in the class for this year. And um, I basically... I mean, it's not like I invented this stuff. I just I realized there's base, then 10 basic pillars that all businesses need to have some um, uh, competency in. And so I, but when you're an urge, emerging entrepreneur, it's hard to see the forest for the trees. There's so much going on that you forget that you need to close your books every month or you don't, you're not, you're moving so fast. You don't sign contracts with, with 
with uh, independent contractors. And then later everybody gets into a pissing match because they heard one thing and you, t you thought you said another thing and nobody's clear about what the compensation is or the deliverable, those kinds of things. So my goal is to just create a structure of um, these pillars that are, are timeless and apply to all businesses and you know help early stage entrepreneurs learn from mostly the mistakes that I've made and from one another. And so that this is an ongoing series that we that I teach and um, you know someday I'd love to be able to uh, make that a, more of a full-time deal for myself. I mean it sounds like an incredibly valuable resource and uh, I mean obviously it is. Um, I think it is. Just, I think it's proven to be there's lots and lots of companies that have been touched by it that I still maintain relationships here in Portland and um, so it may not be for everybody. It's a little bit more direct than some of the other approaches in town. I can tell you that. There's a lot of the, let's get together and drink beer and listen to somebody else's success story type stuff going yeah. on in town, which to me is bullshit. If you have time to go drink beer at 6 o'clock, then you're not an entrepreneur. you got shit to do. There's yeah. Drink beer at your office if you need to drink a beer. Like, <laughs> there's no time for it. So, <laughs> yeah, right. um, uh, at least that's my experience. <laughs> so others may have other yeah. experiences, but I, I, um, that's not my, my, my experience. So we try and get right to the heart of the matter. And the point being, if you don't care, you have to care as much about your business or more than I do. Like, and, and, I'm, and anybody that cares about their business to that extent, I'm, I'm always willing to help. I mean, you can always tell if someone's serious For sure, that. absolutely. So if they're drinking beer at 5 o'clock, then they're probably not the right... They may not be a good fit for the class. <laughs> yeah, their, their heart might not be all the way in. Uh, just so out of curiosity, let's say hypothetically I'm an emerging entrepreneur. How do I get involved into a class, uh, you know, your class? Well, I mean, it, it, so I'll just give you my email address, and, you get, and whoever can email me. I get hundreds of emails a day, and I'll get back to you. So uh, you can reach me at Sean, S-E-A-N, at Portland Product Works, W-E-R-K-S. Um, or you can just Google um, Portland Product Works, and that'll take you there. Or Google Sean Beers, and that'll take you to something. Probably a story, that, some less than savory story or something. But <laughs> you'll be able to find me if you if you look around. I'm on Facebook, uh, whatever, any any social media platform, Sean Beers. Just look me up. And, and again, Sean Beers, or Sean at PortlandProductWorks.com. And um, happy to happy to help. And again, that's S-E-A-N. Yep, B-E-E-R-S at Portland Product Works, and works is W-E-R-K-S dot com. So, I mean, all that is incredible. Uh, right now, I'd just like to do a little, a quick fluff piece, if that's okay. Uh, I, obviously, you're avid fly fishing, skiing, and music enthusiast. Uh, what kind of music are you into right now? Um, I, I, I like, I love all kinds of music, but I play guitar, and um, I'm studying jazz, I have a jazz teacher, and, um, but I play, you know, if I, like, go home and um, maybe just throw on some backing track or something. It's likely to be a blues backing track, and I'll play over the top of that and okay. end my night that way, you know. But so you know, blues, a lot of acoustic finger style and and jazz. Do you have a favorite blues guitarist of all time? Oh, I don't know. Um, there's a lot of great ones out there for sure. Stevie Ray Vaughan probably is right there at the top of Absolutely. the list. Yeah. Um, but uh, Jerry Garcia is my favorite guitarist, wow. and uh, um, there's you know some great jazz guys that I really love. Wes Montgomery probably the top of that list. And when you, when you were younger and had a little money and having a little more fun, did you ever get an opportunity to go to San Francisco or see Jerry Garcia perform? Oh, I saw the dead a lot of times. Yeah, sure. Yeah, we would take road trips and, and uh, I've been to quite a few dead shows in, in my day. Yeah. I figured that might be the case. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember a lot of them, but I did. I, I remember going to them. <laughs> 
Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> Unfortunately, I'd actually rather have gone so, stone sober. Had I known what I was watching, I would have realized that how important it was, and it might have been a good idea to pay a little more attention. <laughs> but you know, um, hindsight's twenty twenty. So <laughs> indeed, it is. Uh, so one more time, just out of curiosity. I mean, you're doing so much incredible stuff right now. I mean, I'm beyond impressed by everything that you're doing, what you've accomplished. Where do you see yourself in the future? What would you like to mm. articulate here in the next couple of years? Yeah, I'd like to um, help our business be successful, both for not only the business itself, the investors and the founders of Dovetail. So that's really a major goal for me. And I think, you know, as we're able to grow and develop that business, um, hopefully that will afford me the opportunity to actually do more teaching and work with more early stage entrepreneurs. Um, the fact of the matter is, is at least for me anyways, I might have almost no relationships that have any value beyond the relationships I have with other entrepreneurs because I, for whatever reason, we connect immediately. We know how hard our lives are and how hard the, the missions are. And I don't, we just don't have a lot of time for small talk, political talk, BSing, et cetera. And I have really good connections with those folks and I love, and I, I just like helping them. If I can be involved in, in doing more of that in the future, that's what I would like to be doing. Um, with my days and, and my time on a you know, much more significant basis for the further reach. So um, I'm trying to work towards that. I mean, like I said yesterday to you, the more you give, the more you get. And that's genuinely how I feel. And uh, I, hope, I hope that's true over time. I believe that's true. <laughs> but yes, it does feel good to give back. And it does feel good to work with others that, know, that you understand how much they appreciate that what you're doing with them. And again, not that I have all the answers. Sometimes it's not about the answers. It's about just you know, working through problems with somebody or being open to their solutions and helping them to validate and so forth. So, Absolutely. And uh, just one last thing. Sure. Uh, if you were to give advice to anyone right now that might be listening in prison or just got out, uh, what would be that main key piece of advice you would give? Well, I did joke about earlier about dropping out of college, but that is a joke. I think that um, education in some form or another is the key to getting yourself back onto the right track. Um, it doesn't have to be a formal education. It certainly doesn't have to be a law degree. Um, it could be, you know, deep studies in, in uh, anything that you are interested in, whether it be art, music, um, uh, sound recording or, or, or uh, DJing or whatever the case is. It doesn't matter. But like if you're going to be great or good and impactful in anything, you're going to have to put in some time. You're going to have to learn. You're going to have to have mentors. You're going to have to have, um, you know, real effort put forth. And so. You know, I think a lot of us start things and then we drop them. We start another thing and then we drop it. We start another thing, we drop it. You hit a brick wall, you drop it. You got to work with. You got to work through the problems. You got to get educated. So again, it doesn't have to be a college education, but I mean, it's not a bad place to start. So um, by any means, but um, but that'd be my advice: is to to, to get educated and, and stick with it and don't give up too easy. I mean, I agree completely. I mean, I feel I've always said this. I feel like the first step is admitting and acknowledging that you know nothing. You know. I, I, I yeah, say the like, older I get, the less I know. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, I, I would say the, <laughs> the smartest person in the room is the stupidest person in the room. Yeah. So, like, I mean, knowledge is completely infinite. Yep. And um, it's all available, too. Yeah. yeah it's all, especially with the Internet, there's no excuse at all That's whatsoever right. anymore. Yeah. yeah. So it's just at this point. Uh, I got to say, man, thank you, Sean. Like, uh, got to give a big shout out to Sean Beers. Uh, Portland Product Works, amazing guest. Look forward to hopefully having you back sometime. I'd love to come back. I, I like, like this work, and uh, I think it's great, great work that you guys are doing, and happy to be a part of it, and, and uh, you know, appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, I appreciate you being here. So, just a reminder, real quick, uh, you know, Felony Inc. podcast every Friday, 10 a.m. at StartupRadioNetwork.com, and uh, I'll see you next week. Support for today's episode comes from our friends at Ruby Receptionists. At Ruby, they've mastered the art of turning rings into relationships. 
Their team of remote receptionists answer all your calls live as if they're right there in your office. And with Ruby's mobile app, you can easily control how they screen, transfer, and take your messages. Together, you and Ruby transform your phone into the sales engine it was meant to be. Visit callruby.com slash startup radio to sign up, or better yet, call them at 833-861-8100 and use promo code STARTUPRUBY. Tell them Felony Inc. sent you and get $150 credit. You're listening to the Startup Radio Network. Listen. Learn. Launch. 10% of our gross revenue goes directly to women entrepreneurs in developing countries around the world through Kiva's microfinance program.